Well, today we dive into a storyline with a man who received kind of distressing and bad news from a far country, from his home country. And all of a sudden it stirred something in him that ultimately led to what we now know as the book of Nehemiah, where God led a man to lead a group of people to rebuild a city that was broken down and without walls. I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel like I get inoculated to news and bad news, any kind of information, especially we, we scroll in our, most of us on our phones all the time and, and we see and hear so much information, not only locally, but nationally, globally, and we kind of tune it out. And understandably so, because we can't drink in this much information. I don't know that our brains are designed to do so even. But what I've noticed happens in me, and I don't know if this happens to you, but I become inoculated to the information. That I see people whose lives may be in a terrible plight and circumstance, and it's just information to me. It's kind of in one ear, back out the other, but it doesn't really impact my heart in a way that I know it must impact God's heart. And so as a result of that, this, this study is, is a, has been really profound in my own life already, just beginning to go through the book in order to prepare to, to share it with you, of just uh, what it looks like in our lives every day to hear news from wherever it is, and what am I going to do with that? And to give you a little backstory so we can set up the book of Nehemiah correctly, if you're, if you're new to the Bible or new to this book, let me kind of roll you back in, the, in history. We're really speaking here about the nation of Israel in a circumstance that was difficult for them. But understand Israel's beginnings. God was working a plan from the time of the fall of man in the garden to redeem man. God saw fit to ultimately raise up a man whose name was Abraham, called him out. He, became a, he was a man of faith who heard God. He called him out of idolatry. And that man responded to God's calling and from that man became a family, and that family ultimately became a nation. By the time you get to the end of the book of Genesis, a nation has formed. It's a nation of Israel, the 12 tribes of Jacob or Israel at that point. And they find themselves in Egypt, and at that point was due to a famine that was in the land. And they went there to receive food and ultimately lived there for more than 400 years. At the time of that, 400 years came to a conclusion... Israel was in a terrible circumstance. And that circumstance was slavery, it was oppressive, it was terrible. And they began to cry out to the Lord and asking God for a deliverer. And God came down to deliver. And he met with Moses and gave Moses the charge to be the man to guide him out. But ultimately it was God who supernaturally did some things that led Israel out of the slavery that they were in. They were ultimately rescued by the blood of the Lamb. God set a course for them because he had made a promise to Abraham that he was going to cause him to inherit a piece of property that we know as Israel today in that area of Palestine. Well, Israel left Egypt, was rescued by the blood of the Lamb, had supernatural crossing through the Red Sea, was fed by God in the wilderness. They were on a good trek to head to the promised land, but sin entered into the people, apostasy started to settle, and people rejected the word of God. At the end of the day, all of those ages 20 and over were sentenced in judgment, really, to die in the wilderness of unbelief. And God said, you rejected my truth, my promises, and my words. So I want to take your children into the promised land instead. And so God guided them into the promised land with Joshua now as their leader. 
As they get into the promised land, they conquered the land just as God had instructed them to. Unfortunately, leaving little remnants of pieces of people and cities behind as they went. They were conquered, but they still existed, though God had told them to utterly drive them out so there would be no remnant left. But they left remnants. And so by the time you get to the book, end of Joshua's time frame, uh, Israel was now ruled by judges. And judges were military kind of leaders, political leaders, but they weren't the king. They were just a leader that God would raise up. And the problem was, is Israel would backslide and then they would repent and then they would backslide and repent. And they'd go through these cycles of this again and again. And every time they would repent, God would raise them up a general, a new judge who would lead them so that they could win in battle. Ultimately, Israel came to the spot where they wanted a king so they could be like all the other nations, a king that would ride out to battle in front of them. And Israel rejected the theocracy that they had, which would mean God is their king, and they adopted the concept of a monarchy of an earthly king. When that happened, God gave them a king, exactly what they wanted, and they got, the king, got King Saul. And King Saul began as an okay king. He was a humble man and started out relatively well, but it didn't last long, and he rebelled against God. And so God raised up another king, King David. Well, this cycle starts to begin where Israel has these different kings and there's division in the camp between Israel, between the north and the south. Ultimately, they become conquered as a people. The Assyrian army came in and conquered the ten tribes of the northern part of Israel. The two tribes of the south, which would have been the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, occupied Jerusalem and the surrounding area of Galilee in that area. Ultimately, they were conquered as well. The Babylonian army came in in 606 B.C. and politically sacked the, sacked the city. Ten years later, in 596 B.C., there was a heavier military move that basically seized the city. And by 586 B.C., another ten years went by, and the city was now crushed. The temple was wrecked. It was, it was destroyed. The city was destroyed. The walls were broken down. The, the gates were burned. And the people who lived in the city were dispersed all over. Many of them were taken captive, which we would know people like Daniel um, in our Bible was one of those taken captive and, and then ultimately taken to Babylon. The Babylonian Empire capital at that time was in where we would know Baghdad, Iraq, to be just about 50 miles south of Baghdad. And so you try to just get your geography set of what's happening here. Israel gets dispersed, and it was a 70-year dispersion for Israel. God had pronounced this judgment upon them. This 70 years was significant because Israel had been neglecting the Sabbath year of rest 70 times. Which means for all these years of the kings, they were living in apostasy and rejecting the Sabbath year. Every seventh year, they were supposed to let the land rest from um, plowing and sowing and all that. And they blew off the Sabbath rest 70 times. And so because of that apostasy, God pronounced this 70-year judgment upon them that they would be dispersed all over, conquered as a people, but God would ultimately, at the end, return them back and give them a writ decree so they could go back to their land. Well, at the end of this 70-year dispersion time, Cyrus, the king of Persia, the Persian Empire, had conquered the Babylonian Empire. And so the Persian Empire is now in charge, and Cyrus, the king of Persia, and I believe under the influence of Daniel, um, wrote a decree, and that decree gave the Jews permission to go back and rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. 
So a man named Zerubbabel led back a group of people to rebuild the temple. About 60 years later, a man named Ezra goes back to establish temple worship and gets all things put into order for temple worship to take place again. Well, now we're just a few years later than that. About 12 years more has passed. And Nehemiah, who is a Hebrew man, but he is the cupbearer to the king, the king of Persia. And as this cupbearer, his role in this would mean is that he's going to stand alongside with the king and he's going to taste test everything, food and drink, that would ever come to the king in the event someone was trying to off the king and poison him. Nehemiah dies first. It's a super high trust position. He would be in counsel to the king, but he would be the trusted one that the king always knew, Nehemiah is my guy. Nehemiah had a responsibility before the king that his countenance was always right. And so Nehemiah on this particular day is just a day like any other day, received some information that was very hard for him to hear. As he catches news that Jerusalem is still laying in ruin, though the temple's been reconstructed, the city's still a wreck, and things are in bad shape. And we'll read the, uh, about it in just a moment. But as we approach this study, and this is a 13-chapter study, we'll be in this for a little while, there's some overarching themes in this book and some lessons that I believe God wants us to capture. If you're a Christ follower today, and you already know that, that that's settled in your life, but maybe there's been some difficulties in your life and some things have been broken down, and, and quite frankly, even where you feel your security as a believer is even in question, and that's been a struggle for you. Or maybe the gates, the control access points in your life. So having some set boundaries and you feel like your life's out of control. And you feel like even maybe as a Christ follower, your life's almost laying in ruin. And you're, you're wanting to rebuild that thing, but you don't even know where to begin. Well, this study for us is going to be really helpful. It's going to be a very practical study that we're going to be able to deal with so many issues of the heart. But I want you to capture something Isaiah wrote about that I think will help us here. Let's see the verse. Isaiah chapter 60 says this, Violence shall no longer be heard in your land, neither wasting nor destruction within your borders. But you shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. This sets in order for us a little bit of a, a theme for the book of Nehemiah. Those walls that are going to be rebuilt in this book, are the security that we have as a believer. They're the salvation that you have. For Israel, it was their sovereignty as establishing as, a, as an actual nation or as a city again. For us, our walls are our security that we have, and our wall is Christ himself, and he is the one who secures these borders for our lives so that we operate inside of that in all, in all liberty in Christ. And so this study will help us in terms of establishing our security as a believer by what? By simply claiming the promises that God has already made and watching how he fulfills them to the letter every time and learning to lean into the Lord no matter the circumstance. The gates that are called praise are critical because these are the controlled access points. And this is where we realize sometimes when all the enemy oppression and things take place in our lives and we feel like our lives might be in ruin or in destruction or just things aren't going well, whether it's for us or someone else, that we struggle in the area of praising God in this and giving thanks unto the Lord in everything give thanks for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. And so we struggle possibly in that area and so it's going to be critical through this study that we learn to rehang those gates and rebuild them. The controlled access points 
in our lives. There's another practical application to everything that we will observe through the book of Nehemiah. And here it is. Proverbs 25, 28. That says, whoever has no rule over his own spirit is like a city broken down and without walls. When I have no rule over my own spirit, my, my life just gets kind of blown according to the circumstances of the day. Matter of fact, in Ephesians, it's described as being blown about or carried about by every wind and doctrine and slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. It's, a, it's just this constant storm of new problems, new issues. My security is not set in the Lord. My confidence is not there. It brings about all kinds of stress. It brings about anxiety. The enemy oppression seems to set in. I begin a level or a pathway of discouragement can ultimately even lead into depression. And these things are real with Christian people. And so we're going to address these things through this book. That I, I love these Old Testament books because they're just so practical. Because you're dealing with real people, real circumstances, and God lets you even peer into the heart and understanding a lot of the emotion that's taking place so that we can liken things in our lives today to exactly what's going on right here. And so as we now understand some of what's going on in the book of Nehemiah, let's, well, let's look at the book, Nehemiah chapter 1. We'll begin in verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. It came to pass in the month Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Shushan, the citadel. Now we'll stop here. This is a day like any other day, nothing, nothing special. This is not a big feast day. There's nothing special going on. Nehemiah is in Shushan, the palace or the citadel. Now, the Persian Empire, I told you, obviously over, uh, conquered the um, Babylonian Empire. And they moved the capital to Shushan or what's known as Susa. This is in Iran, or excuse me, in Iran. So to give you perspective here, let's just figure some geography out. How far apart are all these things? It, by car today, if you Google map this thing, and got in your car to drive from Jerusalem to Shushan the palace is an 18-hour drive. About 350 hours walk by foot. Now, that's land news from a faraway country. It is the home base. I get it. It's so far away. But that's a long ways out. The word came to Nehemiah. In this month, Chislev, it's the, because of the lunar calendar, you're in the span of November to December, somewhere in that range. But here's what I want us to catch first. Nehemiah is a Hebrew man who is serving this Gentile king. God has seen fit through all of the circumstances, with all the opportunities for the Jews to return from captivity, to go back and rebuild, all this time that has been there, but Nehemiah is in a critical position for right now. God providentially, by his hand, has Nehemiah in the right place at the right time. He's in the right relationship. He has the right role. God has seen fit to put him in that spot as a trusted man to the king. Because God's going to do something in this man's life that's going to expose him to some information. God's going to convict him and then give him a calling in his life to go do something. But it's a providential moment here that we can see. It's a day like any other day, but Nehemiah is a unique man for a unique moment. 
I believe that God has placed every one of us by his hand providentially exactly where he wants you to be. Your family situation is exactly the family God wanted you to have. Your work, your education, the classes you sit in, the people you sit beside, the situation in your neighborhood, the circumstances surrounding everything going on in your life right now, God has you in a spot providentially because you are there with God's hand, God's guiding, with God's purpose and God's mission because as a Christ follower, he has you like a missionary in a particular spot to be the light in a dark spot and he's chosen you out for that role. Just like Nehemiah, and it may feel like any other day, day in, day out things, but God has uniquely picked you for the spot that you're in. So here's part of the settling and setting some walls and gates in our heart. It is so common today in our culture to be a victim of our circumstances, but I don't see Nehemiah here playing victim. Nehemiah is displaced from where his family roots come from in Jerusalem. But he's not playing victim. He has flourished in the spot that he's in. He has now come to the spot of being second to the king. And God's using him uniquely in that spot. He is not the victim. He recognizes God's sovereignty and God's providential hand in his life. And now when information comes, he has to decide, what am I going to do with that? And so now here's the present reality in verses 2 and 3. Let's watch. That Hananiah, one of my brethren, in chapter 7 makes it seem that it's actually Nehemiah's brother. Hananiah, one of my brethren, came with him from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and who had survived the captivity and concerning Jerusalem. So you can imagine this conversation that these guys have come back from Jerusalem and are now giving Nehemiah some intel about what's going on there. And it's kind of one of those, hey, did you happen to see so-and-so? And what about this person? And what about that? Well, what's going on in Jerusalem? Tell me about what's happening in Jerusalem. It's a long ways. It's 1,500 clicks to get over there. It's a long ways. It's not like he's just going to pack up and go check it out for himself. Well, they said to me, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. The circumstance is terrible. The people that are there, our brethren, the Hebrew people are there. They're in great distress, which means they're grievous. They're in poverty. They're broken. There was actually a famine. We'll see later in this book. We'll see the famine that's taking place. Because there was a famine, there were people that were making uh, a lot of profit in this situation where they were loaning money with so much interest attached to it that it was going to just literally break each other. And Nehemiah will have to address that issue later. But this is a terrible time of just oppressive time for Israel and for the, the Hebrew people. There's a reproach, which means there was a shame, a disgrace, the scorn of the enemy that just kept pushing against. Because, you know, I read something like this and I'm like, well, if it's been in ruins all this time, how come somebody hasn't bothered to raise up and do something about it? At least sweep up around your own house and start cleaning up the wall near your home. Do something. But you start to see what's un going to unfold in this book as we go is the amount of enemy oppression that every time anything positive is going to go in a forward direction, the enemy's going to push right up against that to stop it. And unless somebody was willing to rally the whole team together into a cause, no one's going to individually be able to do this. 
And so the enemy is going to always assault, which is a theme throughout our entire Bible. We just talked about this in the last few weeks of the king and his kingdom. God as the king is always advancing his mission and his purpose. God always has an opposition, and that is the devil himself and all his cronies and how he operates through the opposing of God's things. And Israel now is laying is really in shame and disgrace. And so let's just unpack this for where do we live? Let's get out of this Old Testament and let's drop it right here in 2019 where we are. We may not see this Green County, Greater Springfield area as laying in ruin like the city of Jerusalem. Physically. But let's just look at it from a practical standpoint. Do you realize that in Green County alone, this doesn't go into Webster's, I'll just leave that alone, but just figure the county right where we're sitting today that 80% or more of the people that are in our county are unchurched. That means they do not attend anywhere. Now, they may lay claim to a church that is theirs, but there's, they don't go. On any given Sunday, you total it all up. There's churches on every corner, usually two on some, and the banks on the other corner. So you got all that going on, but 80% of the people do not actively attend a church. So now you're down to the 20%. So two out of every 100 people, or 20 out of every 100, sorry, people I run into might have a church um, that they're connected to and as often as stated the 80-20 rule you take 20% of that 20 are actively engaged in carrying out the mission of the church and are are functioning in the bible studies and discipleship and what it's going to take to advance the gospel throughout the community and the world well you take 20% of 20% what are you down to well you're only talking about 4% so four out of every hundred people you meet are probably actively engaged in gospel ministry and advancing the gospel in the world, anywhere, locally or globally. And that's in Greene County. I think about all the struggles with family struggles and divided families and single-parent homes and some of the issues that, that come out of that. I think about personal challenges of folks that have sometimes bad decisions have been made on top of someone to where it's caused great impact on their life and other times it's folks have made bad decisions along the way but now are trying to find a pathway forward and can't can't seem to find a path forward the circumstances of um, of the family dynamic in our own community is often viewed as, as laying in ruin and I hear the things that go through any school system, it doesn't matter which one you go to, and just watching the, the, the tenor of things that are taking place and living in this post-Christian era that we now live in, if that's a new term to you, that simply just means that the, the principles of Christianity, Judeo-Christian principles that have been a part of our American culture are no longer. We're past that. To put this out on a scale that's even a bigger scale, do you realize that there are 10, at least, 10 states in the United States that less than 2% of the population would be considered evangelized? Now, why is that a big deal? Because I'm going to show you a map now on a global level, and I want you to see this with me. This is borrowed from the Joshua Project, and Joshua Project are researchers that are looking into gospel ministry throughout the world where people are evangelized or not evangelized. 
the green, if you can see green, the green are places that are considered evangelized where there's an, a gospel witness and a valid opportunity for people to hear the gospel. So obviously that would be here because good grief, at least at Christmas time, there's a manger scene on every corner and usually one in the McDonald's parking lot. Okay, So there's a valid opportunity. The yellow zones are places where there is some activity there and there's some level of Christianity there. There's even a presence of church, though they'll be splashed pretty far apart. But the churches have some active engagement and outreach that's trying to reach those zones. And so you can see some of the yellow parts. The red one is the one that's in distress because it is the unreached or least reached peoples of the world which is, a, is commonly known as the 1040 window, and sadly that has been talked about. For most of my Christian life, I've heard about that, but the color hasn't changed. It's two-thirds of the world's population that have li limited to no gospel witness and are people growing up in a culture where they are, they're trained to believe there is either no God or the God that is up there is the all-powerful God who is not knowable, the Allah God. And so you have very... Uh, passionate obstinance to Christianity in most of the red zone. So I see that and it's like, okay, great. Two-thirds of the world's population is in that spot. And what do I do with any of that? It's so big. Even when I look at Greene County, the problem is so big. And what do I do if any of these families or individuals or school systems are in such a struggle? And what do I do? And so here's what happens in any of our lives. We, we face then the response to news and information. And that's why I asked earlier, do you feel like you're inoculated to information or newsworthy information? Because here's Nehemiah's response. He catches this news from the far country, from back home. In verse 4, here's his response. And he says, so it was. When I heard these words that I sat down and I wept, and I mourned for many days, and I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Next time we're together, I'll unpack the prayer that he prayed. It's really fantastic. But you know, when I consider the response options that we have, anytime information's coming into our, our church and into our minds, what do we do? Well, one option is we can ignore it and act like it doesn't exist. That's, the, that's really the easy one. Look away, turn it off. If you're inoculated to news, well, the easy fix to that is just don't ever look at it then you don't have to worry about it. What's happening everywhere else on the planet is irrelevant to you. So we can ignore it. The other option is, is we could be indifferent about it. Meaning, I'm not ignoring it, but I just don't really see my part in the equation of it because the problem's either too big or I don't have time and it's really not my thing. After all, let's consider Nehemiah's circumstance. He has this role that is in the, such a high position to the king, he's in the trusted position. So who's going to replace him for that? Because you don't just raise up another cupbearer tomorrow because not everybody's trustworthy. He's 300 and near 50 hours walk away from Jerusalem. So how can that problem be his problem? He's got other things to worry about in the Persian Empire. So we could be indifferent. We can hear information and, man, that's too bad, man. But that's really not my problem. We often don't have time to deal with other people's issues because often we all will say this. Well, I have my own. By the time I care for my own children, my own grandchildren, my own activities, my work, and everything else, by the time I string out my week, I don't have time. 
for anything else. I don't really have any way to do this. Somebody else needs to do that. It's an indifferent approach. Is it, you know, it's, it's just not my deal. They got themselves into that, but they didn't get themselves out of it. And so here's where their struggle comes, is what do we do with the mission that we've been given? Because I believe that's really what this comes down to, is the issue of mission. There was a church mentioned in the book of Revelation, in chapter 3, called the Church of Laodicea, who was the indifferent church. In Revelation chapter 2 and 3 are seven letters to seven different churches in Asia and Asia Minor. They're real churches. I believe these churches also represent a church age time frame so that if you went and likened it to different points of church history since the time of Acts to where we live today, each one of these churches almost represents the exact time and you can just watch each one the story play out. Well, you get to the last letter to the last church and it's the church of Laodicea. And let me just read this letter that was given to this church. The angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, I'm in Revelation 3.14 for you note takers. These things say the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you're neither hot nor cold. I could wish that you were hot or cold. So then because you are lukewarm, neither cold or hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and I have need of nothing. And, and I do not know that you, you do not know that you're wretched and miserable, poor, blind and naked. And here's his counsel. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed and that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. And as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. In this famous verse that is often used probably out of context says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come into him and I'll dine with him and him with me. And to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. And as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne, and he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. You get this visual image of this letter being dispensed to this church that's just lukewarm. They're not hot or cold. They're not against God. <laughs> They're just not all in either. Just kind of flying it down the middle, indifferent. And Jesus is standing outside the door of the church, knocking, because church is still happening. They still do church. And Jesus is just not part of the equation. And he's standing outside, knocking at the door of the church, and says, anyone, it's not just the church, but if anyone in there just would open the door to me, man, I'll, I'll just tell you what, I'll come in. I'll dine with you, I'll do life with you, and you're going to do supernatural things because I'm going to do it with you. And he, he, the plea here is for the church to repent. It's the indifferent church. And I'm not here to charge one community church that we're the indifferent church. I'm giving some considerations here of things that are in, in, in real in my own life. Of Do I ever just turn and ignore the problem and the opportunities where God's at work? that I could join him there? Am I ever just indifferent that, man, I see that, I get that? Man, I don't have time for that, good grief. You dive into that mess, who's got time for that? And it's not always a mess. It's just sometimes it's the person that just needs someone to care, to share the truth, 
to pray, to come alongside with some substance and some way to help. Sometimes it's, it's issues of language and barriers. And so, guys, let me just share some bright things in the midst of the lukewarm age of church life that we live. We don't have to live that way. There's some real blessings that God's enabling for our, our ministry to be a part of. And, and yet we need to just keep a vision to keep moving forward. That we be not the ignoring church or the indifferent church, but we'd be the invested church. And by way of investment, what Nehemiah did is he just went to the Lord and said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And he pleaded with God. Well, that's the spot we need to be. But in the middle of that, in seeing opportunities, let me just share some things with you that have been observations and needs that have been met. For example, just a few weeks ago, we had the privilege as a church to send someone to the red zone, the 1040 window. What a blessing. We haven't even been in a church for a year yet, and God's allowed us to do that. I do not speak this as an attaboy to us, that we're going to have a big pat on the back festival here. That's not the case. It is the mission of God to reach the people of this world. And as God raises up people who says, here am I, Lord, send me, that we get behind them and we send them to where God's leading them to go. We must. And we, never, we can never stop doing that. It is why discipleship matters. Now, hear what I'm going to say. This is very important. Discipleship in our ministry, what it means to us is when somebody is investing their life into another somebody or somebody's, plural, for the purpose of establishing them in the faith, to teach them to love, learn, live Jesus. That's the goal. So that that individual who has been invested in or individuals, plural, that has been invested in can turn right around wherever God puts you on the planet, you will turn right around and invest again just as you were invested in. You will see somebody who is in need of Christ and you will share the gospel with them. And when someone becomes a Christ follower, you're going to say, now come with me and show them how to walk with Jesus and learn to love, learn, live Jesus. And so we have tools for this that help us to guide us so we know how to, what we're going to study each time we come together, that we're accountable for some things together, to grow in some things together. It's also ways to reproduce this. So no matter where I go on the planet, I do the same thing. It was what liberated, and I'm telling you, it changed my entire focus of my life when I realized no matter where on the planet and whatever the vocation is, no matter where my paychecks come from, does not change my mission. It's always the same. I'm, God left me on this planet to make disciples, and this is what God wants me to do. And this is the way I go about it. And so discipleship ministry in our church is critical. It's not just a Bible study, and it's not just an accountability group, and it's not just something cool that we do just because it's who we are. It is a, it is a critical to the mission of God that we learn how to reproduce our Christian lives in, with one another but as we continue to go and go and go, because here's what God will do. God will keep raising up people in our church to say, here am I, Lord, send me. And we need to be, as a church, able then to send because they're equipped and ready to send. Discipleship takes on a lot of different components to it because we disciple sometimes in one-on-one, -on -one, but it also carries right into marriage relationships. It carries right into single adult relationships. It doesn't matter. It carries into parenting areas. It carries right into... Um, adults in my age bracket that are caring for aging parents. 
It carries right into the aging folks who are, who are finishing well and have so much to offer to give back to people that are younger than them that are just beginning their faith journey and their marriage journey and their parenting journey to be able to turn around and give back to that and just say, hey, I've walked that pathway with Jesus for a long time and let me just kind of give you some words of encouragement along the way and show you some things that really helped me and, and show you how to trust God when you don't think you can anymore and life doesn't make any sense anymore. Discipleship in this church matters, and I want to encourage you, if you're not engaged in discipleship, whether you've received some training to disciple someone else, or you're saying, hey, you know what, I really want someone to disciple me and mentor me and help me learn to grow in my faith, all you have to do is let us know, and we'll do our best to connect you and help you with that so that we can grow forward as a church. It's critical to our mission and ministry that the Lord Jesus Christ has given to us. You know, one of the blessings has also been uh, every Sunday morning for the last several weeks, we've had a group meeting over here, Cross-Culture Communication. And it's not a huge group of people, but it's people wanting to learn how to, how to communicate more effectively with people that are not native English speakers. But something else has even birthed out of that, besides uh, maybe our international community that's right here among us, is also people that are deaf. And so for the last couple of weeks, we've had folks, I didn't even know that we had this, and this is how God does stuff. We have a group of people here that are trained in ASL, the American Sign Language, and are capable then of leading our worship and praise and taking the messages as I teach and be able to sign those to people who can't hear. Starting next Sunday... We'll have somebody standing right down here signing because there's an entire community in Greater Springfield that have a very difficult time going to a church because they can't hear. It's a community that we want to reach and just show the love of Jesus to them. Folks, there's opportunities all around us it never stops, and the list can go on and on. I just want to thank many of you who have given in one way or another, whether it's time or resources. Some of you have cleared out your closets and brought things to Wildcat Closet. It's a big deal. When I, if you're not familiar with it, it's in the bulletin. It just becomes a line item. See, it's, it's a danger. Wildcat Closet is sponsored by the PTA of Rogersville that allows every Rogersville student and family member to receive free clothing four times a year. They keep track. Very, it's an incredible system they have. But they can get free clothing and hygiene items that they need right now. And I don't know about you, but man, my figure changes sometimes and it's time to cull out the closet. And things that, quite frankly, we don't even need anymore is a real blessing. But it's also a blessing to go buy things new and say, I just want to be a blessing to somebody else. That wildcat closet bucket out there, it matters. It matters to people who need some clothes when it's 32 degrees outside and their house doesn't have heat just yet because they can't afford to turn the gas on. It matters. Everything we do as a ministry, it matters. Because there's lives that are in ruin, walls broken down, gates that have been burned, and we sit here today and we possess the words of life and the words of hope and the very person of Christ. We are his hands, his feet, we're the light in the dark spot. And so, guys, I realize that every time we rescue, my, my nephew's a, a rescuer in the fire department. 
So when he gets called, it's bad. The bottom line, it's always going to be bad. And as a specific trained rescuer, there's times that you're going to have to jump right into the middle of the mess with people that are in it. There's times you can reach out and just grab someone and pull them out, and that's cool. But there's most of the time you're going to jump right into the difficulty with them. Sometimes it requires just incredible finesse because they're starting twisted up and all kinds of things. And if you just go in swinging, you're going to tear up them and everything around them. And it requires some finesse to pull them out of that. But here's the work of the church. And this is the work of Nehemiah. Is Nehemiah says, you know what, Lord? Here am I. Send me. This man's going to make a 350-hour trek back to Jerusalem in this book to rebuild what has been laying in ruin for a long time. No one else seemed to raise it up and do it. And Nehemiah says, let's go. I look forward to this study with you. But if I could challenge you today is this. What is your response to the opportunities for the mission to advance? And what does God want you to do with that? We're going to pray in just a moment. As we go to prayer, I want to also, I want to pray very specifically. Alex is a part of our ministry and just was leaving just a second ago, kind of in a hurry, to go minister to somebody in town. This last week, there was a student at Missouri State that died in her sleep. Natural causes, it would seem. And um, he has a personal connection to that. And he just asked us that we would pray for him today because he's going right now to have a conversation with one of those, one of that young lady who passed away with a sweet mate who's trying to figure out how does all this work with eternity and God and death and what about, what about now? Let's pray right now. Father, first I want to just pray for Alex. He's going into a spot where the walls are broken down and the gates are burned. He has the words of life because he knows you and the words of hope. So my prayer is for him, Father, that you would speak through him, give him an attentive ear to hear, a tender heart, the right words in the right moment to be silent. 